we want our perfect reader to read some of the things that are written and become angry or become hopeful or enact some sort of change from what they've learned. Yeah, we want to inspire action of our readers, I think. Hello everybody, welcome back to Media Voices. We're the media-focused podcast that takes a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. And before anybody complains, we do all have enormous union flags hanging up behind us. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston, and I have a Scottish flag, obviously. I like the fact that you properly called it a union flag and not Union Jack, like the dipshits do. (laughs) Anyway, before we go completely mad, it's probably worth mentioning that this is going to be our last... Uh, episode before our Easter hiatus which I think if you've listened to the intro is probably long overdue (laughs) so we'll be back on April the 12th so the clip that you heard about 15 minutes ago that clip you heard was from my interview with Hannah Robertson co-founder of Shadow, a twice-a-year print magazine and online platform that's all about giving people a chance to tell their own stories because they believe people with lived experience of a topic or injustice are best placed to advocate for meaningful change within that space. <laughs> you know I love a good independent magazine. Shadow absolutely embodies that indie activist ethos. It was a really cool interview. And, bonus, I think it's the first time we've had an interviewee talk about right-wing rags. So, Interesting. Double win. Well, before that, though, we're going to get into the news from the past week. And really, there's only one word that we need to consider this week. Location, location, location. Because it's been a bumper week for news about places either closing down offices or relocating staff. So we'll begin with talking about the BBC news, because some 550 BBC jobs are going to be closed or moved um, as fundamentally people are using the pandemic almost as a reason to stop. Uh, centralizing all their media holdings in London. So 150 posts are being closed, and there's also a significant shift away from London as a centre for BBC offices and BBC shooting locations. So we've seen that before with, you know, Salford Media City, but now the BBC is making much more of a play for places like Glasgow uh, and places in the north of England (laughs) as being um, the the new hubs. I'm slightly (laughs) confused about the tech team going to Glasgow, though, because tech... well. Of all the teams to move to the top of Scotland... That's not the top it's of not Scotland. not the top, yeah. For a start. But of all this the, is why of, the BBC has to get out of to London. Move, <laughs> of all the teams to move out of London, I'd have thought tech and politics are the two that you keep. Yeah, I completely I completely understand that. You've got to like be... you know, we, we can diversify the media as much as we want, but... We can't. We have no control about where tech events are going to happen, and, and London is still going to be the focus for a lot of that. Not Let's all... face it, though; it's a temporary move. You reckon? Well, independence in a couple of years, they'll just move back down again. <laughs> 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 right, okay. So yeah, the t- the tech team is kind of the the most uh, obvious one there, um, but basically, jobs are quote being roca- being relocated so the broadcaster can better connect with audiences and tell stories from all corners of the UK. Is this not what we have been advocating for? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was a, we we had that story in the newsletter, and we talked about it last week um, about the Welsh kind mm-hmm. of experience of this, and they weren't talking about broadcast necessarily, but the idea that people being closer to the regional or 
national, you know, outside of London stories will do a better job. <sighs> so why people? Know. Why have people been up in arms about it then? Well, mostly people have been up in arms on it because they live in London and they're twats. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, but all right, let's. That's too much because people people are being asked to uproot. No, their I, I think that's like you've got some quite long. You've got some long established journalists there that have got you know they've got friends, they've got family, they've had their lives down in the. But you know what? People have been having to move out of Belfast and mm. out of Glasgow and out of Dundee and out of Leeds and Sheffield and Wales and Cardiff and wherever for decades. One of the I was going to say, there's another point to this: is that why why. Why now, after the year we've just had, are people having that to relocate at all? very, very good question. <laughs> why now? No, no, I, I, I was going to, like, why, why do people have to relocate? You can move you can move the majority of the tech team up to Glasgow, but if somebody in London wants to work remotely, why? Like, we're now very well set up for that. Well, they I, should be. I was that, that is a brilliant point. And, yeah. and I think partly it's because this is a political thing. It's got nothing to do with anything other than politics. You think it's about the optics of having... A... Absolutely. Right, okay. It's um, about, oh yeah, we love you, really. Okay, well, you know what? We can't really talk about this without getting into wider issues. So let's also talk about what Reach is doing. Because the Daily Mirror publisher Reach is closing its London office, or our London office, rather. And it's going to make most staff in regional offices work from home permanently. Uh, the Mirror and the Express is still going to be based in the Canary Wharf offices, but um, because there was a little bit of, uh, I suppose, misinterpretations of the initial press release there. But yeah, so for the most part now, Reach is going to be a wholly work-from-home operation. This is a different story. This is a story, this is basically about um, not letting a good crisis go to waste. Right, okay. This is a cost-cutting story. The bean counters are there you go. Which yeah. didn't didn't take Ding. that long. The bean counters are driving the bus. But I think there's there's a huge culture thing that comes in here as well, and, and I know that there's a lot of publishers in the US that are wrestling with the same questions. Cause yeah, you, Tribune, can you can you take us through some of those, Esther? Actually, yeah. So Tribune Publishing closed five newsrooms in August last year. Um, McClatchy actually announced really early on in June last year that they were going to give up their office leases for at least like a year and a half. And and there's just a lot of well, increasingly publishers are just saying, well, and business business generally are just saying, well, do, we don't need the expensive centralised offices. And there's then a huge cultural impact if you've got people that are suddenly looking at working from home permanently. And a lot of people will, well, there's a lot of debate about to what extent people will welcome that because there's been huge cultural shifts in people's, you know, people don't have to commute anymore. People are suddenly looking to move out of the big cities and, and get houses with actual gardens and, and space. What's but this word? Got... Garden? That's one of the Gar- <laughs> it's where you grow green things like veggie tubbles. What's green? <laughs> <laughs> but then you've got a lot of people saying, well, no, you've still got people that want to mm. go into the office and have an office culture and, and, and talk to people. And I I think it's going to be a huge reckoning for the rest of this year. This is a, this is a harder one. Um, well, can I can I bring in here a quote from Jem Collins, who's the editor and director of Journal Resources, who did a bit of a thread earlier in the week about this. She said, on the one hand, some people actually really like being in an office, and it's very important to people just starting out, which is one hundred percent true. Uh, you know that that I think has been a lightning rod for a lot of the discussion this week. She then went on to say, and creativity is important. On the other hand, these cost savings potentially save jobs. I mean, the national newsroom really is national. So is the is the way is the easy way to square the circle to have that hybrid model of maybe yeah. smaller newsrooms? I think that is, that's the only way to do it because right. I think she's right that the cost savings 
you know, as much as I complain about the bean counters driving the bus, the cost savings are important and they will save jobs. Sometimes you've got to know how many beans you have. Exactly. Um, and also, it's, it's the opportunities that opens up for, you know, uh, we talk about diversifying the media all the time. Mm. A huge part of that is going to be making yep. sure that you can hire people that can't afford to live in London. Yep. Which is most people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that was I've... that was Paul Bradshaw, who uh, he was one of my tutors at City University, and he's you know he's a university lecturer in, in media. He said, "What depressed me the most about this snobby comment from a BBC journalist? He was talking about a tweet from a BBC journalist was the ignorance of how many young, exciting journalists are excluded from the profession because they can't afford to live in London in the Absolutely. first place." Absolutely. That is. I remember doing a, a guest lecture uh, uh, Napier in Edinburgh. And one of the first questions I was asked was, do I have to move to London to get a job in media? And that's a really depressing question. So the plus side of this is maybe that, you know, you don't have to anymore. Mm. The the negative is exactly that point. Gone too um, far the other way. About, yeah, about how do young people get brought on? You know, if your role models or your mentors are only ever on a Zoom call. Yeah. I don't know. That's a weird one. I also think it's going to be, it's got to be such a tricky one because so much of what makes journalism, you know, fresh and exciting and relevant and powerful is kind of those relationships that you build up, that expertise you share, not necessarily during work hours, you know, like the, it's yep. going to the pub with people after the fact. That's kind of my point. I think it was Neil Thackeray uh, tweeted that this was really depressing and my response was, yeah, it's, but... I, what's the most depressing thing about it is the unintended consequences because it's being driven by spreadsheets and people aren't paying attention to that training aspect to the kind of you know, you know that way you have an idea just because you met someone yeah. you know you're just having a chat and wow this is a great idea for a story or I didn't know that let's follow that up you'll, you, you know you'll page designs different kinds of images that gets used. It all just comes out of this random serendipity of a, a of a meeting that just won't be there anymore. But I, yeah, I suppose, is, is there a way around that? You know, could you have sort of regional hubs almost where, I mean, it, it wouldn't even necessarily have to be just journalists, but you'd, you'd have groups of people that come and work together and, and oh, yep. I don't know. I, I know a lot, you know, a lot of people have gone on and on and on about this in LinkedIn and things, but it's... Mm-hmm. I, th- I think people people will need some sort of gathering space <laughs> for work. I mean, m- maybe this is where we work comes back into its own. Oof. So, I mean, I suppose the devil is going to be in the details for this one. We're going to have to keep an eye on what's actually going to happen. One thing to mention, though, which potentially ties together this BBC and re- these BBC and Reach stories, is the idea that the BBC has also said that they're going to have a new network. Well, Tim Davey, Director General, said a new network of more than 100 digital reporters is going to be created to bring uh, quote bring us closer to some of the UK's most underserved communities, which is designed to increase the quality and depth of the BBC's online local reporting. That's a very good soundbite. That's a fantastic yeah. release. Um, I mean, in, in theory, for both stories, there are opportunities here for people who don't live in London and certainly. hopefully to improve access for the future, but... It it's like, might not go that way. It's like so many of the stories we talk about. It's about the, it's about how the implementation takes place. Yeah, it's not about the actual idea. No. It's about how it's implemented. And so far, there's there's precious <laughs> little data about this. James Murchison, who's editor of Yorkshire Post, uh, actually requested a meeting with um, Tim Davy 
to talk about, well, what will these, you know, how will these local journalists work with titles like his? Uh, you know, will they act as competition or will they kind of shore up their existing reporting? Uh, Tim Davies said he doesn't have time to get back to him. So it's just like... <laughs> like the background to this is just all the other, just the absolute dumpster fire that is British society at the moment. What are you talking about? Well, just all the Peter. protests, not protests, you can't protest, I didn't protest, I got punched at a protest, it's just... Sorry, Peter, I, I, I think you're missing the most important facts here, which is the number of flags per capita has never been higher. Statues now have voting rights. This is all good news. What are you talking about? Britain's never been greater. Sorry, I, mis- I misread the signs. <laughs> And now for the news in brief. Facebook has said it will soon start testing partnerships with a small group of independent writers for its new publishing platform. Yes, Facebook is launching Substack. I was going to say, it's not just Substack. (laughs) It's not Substack Plus. Okay, okay, so Substack plus WordPress. So the platform will include tools for journalists to build websites and newsletters as well as monetize with subscriptions. There's new details about whether Facebook are planning to get a cut of this or whether this will be on Facebook properties. (sighs) Really? Um, yeah, it's just kind of more details to be released. Is, okay, but is this this isn't a, a purely news focused one, is it? No. Nope. Is it is it creatives in general? Yep. Yes. Yeah, I believe kind of, it's that huge tale of independent creators that they're they're looking at. Okay. I think this is our groups play more than anything else mm. because they tied it. They've tied it into groups. Um, so and pages. So you basically you've got your group, you have got your page, you have got your. Uh, newsletter so yeah basically it's wordpress <laughs> um it's a combination of wordpress and, and uh well and, it, and it feels a little bit like oh twitter's twitter's kind of nudging to this space with with its acquisition review, review quick let's launch something yeah but i'm just being very cynical there no i think that's right i mean god how fast do you think we could launch a new product and then facebook will clone it do you reckon it's in the space of about 36 hours mm. Depends how good it was. <laughs> uh, so this is an interesting one. The Daily Telegraph was reported as linking some elements of journalist pay to the popularity of the articles that they produced, and it it was kind of mis. This it was uh, such a lightning rod. It was. Mi- it, I don't know if it was misreported or misread, but uh, everyone was like, "Oh, that's the worst thing ever! Paying people for clickbait. We've been here before, and this is bullshit." Blah blah blah. But actually. That's not what the Telegraph was saying. They were talking about a stars system which scores stories more on how many subscriptions they drive rather than the traffic that they drive. So again, I think it's about the implementation of this one. Adam uh, Adam Timmer did a really good piece yeah, on Yeah, he brought that data. He really pushed back against it. Um, and, I, and I don't know. I, whether you agree or not, I don't know. It's, it is the implementation, isn't it? Because if you're... Yeah. Some stories naturally will attract more subscribers. You know, also, as has been pointed out, the article that people use to subscribe is not always the best indicator of where their journey began, yeah. of where that funnel started. No. So I, presumably I they have ways to measure this, that. Th- this star system does actually take it. So um, Jacob Donnelly, who runs a media operator, he he put out he put out two really good pieces. Um, but the first one kind of took that idea apart of like, you know, people... Um, yeah. people don't just go on a website and go oh I'll subscribe because I've read a really good story there's often like quite a complex journey and you know you might you might really appreciate some traffic reporting but it won't be a traffic report that causes you to subscribe but he then actually wrote um, he, he sort of had to think about it and he had to look at the way the Telegraph is looking at doing it and he said actually the way that their star system is working overcomes a lot of that 
because it builds it builds these scores based on kind of the journeys people have taken through the website how they come back how they interact as registered users um i think we'll probably link to it in um in the notes but it's it, it, yeah he, he sort of he sat down and he had to think about it and he had to look at how the system actually works he said actually the way that they're looking at doing it is quite clever and it does overcome a lot of the issues that people have flagged earlier in the week in the kind of general mass hysteria of tying pay to popularity well it was just that old school clickbait thing wasn't yeah. it yeah people were worried that that's what we're right back and you know when it comes to a telegraph <laughs> yeah i'm still i'm still a little uneasy about it to be yeah, honest yeah yeah definitely so i can't say if it's wholly good or wholly bad but i do like the idea that people are paying attention to the work of journalists as fueling the commercial success of these organizations that is a good thing so it's all good then all good Peter thinks the Telegraph is good. Moving on. Facebook is building an Instagram for kids under 13. Well, I think that's devil- mental. <laughs> yeah, thought, talk about devil in the details. I want to say on this, Facebook have launched, tried to launch a number of like social media apps for younger people before, and it's just not worked. So I think this is this is a headline and nothing else. Oh, has it got Nick Clegg's name on it? <laughs> I don't know. So News Corp Australia has announced this week that it has signed a multi-million dollar deal with Facebook for use of news articles from publications in its Australian region. Um, Johnny good. <laughs> good, good for News Corp Australia. Who could have predicted that? <laughs> but the, I'm sure you know, as people have pointed out, that they've they've made provision in there for some of the smaller titles and the independents to also you know get a piece of the pie, haven't they? Probably not. So people are getting a bit angry at Substack. Substack's yeah. not having a good time recently, no. eh? Uh, this time it's for allegedly misrepresenting how possible it is to become ridiculously wealthy by doing a newsletter on Substack. Yeah, we so we included sort of an, an early uh, aspect of this in the um, an early sort of like foray into this in the newsletter this week, basically saying. Um, you know what, it's actually misrepresenting the people who have been successful and have been paid directly from Substack uh, to succeed on there, and then they've then sold that to people basically saying, oh, look, you can do this, it's possible, very possible to do. Uh, so in the Recode article, which we'll link to in the notes, it says, in some cases, Substack has also shelled out one-off payments to help convince some writers to become Substack writers, and in some cases, those deals are significant. But then it's just kind of snowballed, and there's been a lot of discussion about who those people are, uh, who's actually making that money? Uh, I don't know. It's just it's the it's an early roadblock to this idea that newsletters can sustain an individual journalist. I think. Well, I think there's 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 a bigger issue that Substack is Substack's not got that transparency around who it's funding. Yeah. Um, and that's causing a lot of issues with some people. Although um, there's a there's one writer who um, who launched his newsletter last year on an an advanced deal from Substack. And he said that actually um, he's now got so many subscribers, he's got about 9,000 subscribers. He's making far less on the advanced deal oh, than he would have done that. if he'd just gone with a yeah. normal deal from Substack. <laughs> yeah, by, by about two or three times the amount he's actually making. Oh, my God. I get all that. I get that, you know, Substack's not been transparent or whatever. But anyone that thinks it's easy to become wealthy doing an individual newsletter is bonkers. That is so much work. I just, it's like, I don't know. It's like starting a podcast to get rich. Well, we're all each recording this from our private yacht, aren't we? Of course. (laughs) 
This week I spoke to Hannah Robethon, co-founder of Shadow, a print magazine and online platform that gives people the space to tell their own stories. We spoke about their frustration with the mainstream media, what activism means and what success looks like for Shadow. But first I asked her how Shadow got started. We started Shadow in 2019, I guess out of a frustration at mainstream media. There didn't seem to be much centering of voices of those with lived experience. Um, I guess I was coming at it from like quite an international development point of view because um, my co-founder and I were just done kind of master's degrees in the development sector. And I think something that we learned while we were in the whole bubble of academia is one that there doesn't seem to be much of a trickle down, but also the kind of damaging way that the media can portray issues that we were really passionate about, such as rights of people who um, have been forced into the refugee experience. So we didn't have any experience with media, but we decided um, that we would create Shadow as a platform for people to take control of their own narrative, to tell their own stories. And that started with our first issue, which was on migration to Europe. Um, And so a majority of the contributors whether it was kind of the artists or the writers were of refugee or asylum seeking status themselves just because we were yeah we were tired with mainstream media's lack of representation that idea of lived experience is really interesting to find a journalist a freelance journalist that will write about immigration or whatever is probably fairly easy but Mm -hmm. to find someone who's actually been there done that kind of thing that must be quite a challenge the thing is I don't think I don't think it's necessarily a challenge because there are so many people who are out there doing the work kind of ready to tell their story but they kind of just don't have the platform for it. I think the issue when you're taking a microscopic view of kind of topics is that if I don't know if someone who hasn't been through the experience then starts writing about it it can just really feed into this culture of misunderstanding. There are really obvious examples of that if we're talking like right wing rags and stuff. But it's it's pretty insidious as well, even in kind of more um, like centre and left press and stuff. I think I think the biggest issue is, yeah, the lack of people being given the platform to tell their own stories. When you've got a contributor, you've identified someone or someone's come to you and said, I've got a story to tell. How do you make sure you get something that works for the magazine? When we first started, I think it was actually a, a, a blessing that we didn't have any experience in media because obviously you're meant like y- you can have an editorial voice, right? And you can you can change people's words so it sa- makes it sound a bit better. But we didn't really know that, and so we d- developed, I guess, sort of this collaborative methodology, uh, if mm. you like, where we kind of kept everyone's voices as authentic as possible. Yeah, and so. It's quite nice now that we've been going for a few years and so people know kind of the sort of style that we have. Yeah. It's not too prescribed, basically. One of the things I love about independence, you know, indie magazines, is the idea of people learning as they go along. Mm-hmm. They had a, a vision, I feel like, we want to do this, so they just do it and then they figure out the magazine craft aspect of it behind it. What's the big learnings in terms of how you actually do it? I think our big learning is that most of the 
work is already out there. Most of the really kind of exciting stuff is already out there. It's just collating it in a way that makes it bring like a bigger impact. I think that's also goes back to why we started Shadow in the first place. Like there were so many brilliant people doing like very important work across the arts, across activism, um, in research. But when they were working in isolation, that kind of led right. to well, I just I I guess it didn't have as much impact when actually a lot of these topics that we're looking at are so interconnected. <laughs> Key learnings from the youth issue actually, which is the upcoming issue, um, is that there are so many different ways that people are using media spaces and online spaces to create change. Um, we've got a piece uh, written by a young author in Manchester um, who is looking at kind of alternative spaces for online activism and it includes the gamer community um, who are embedding code into like different games <laughs> as a way of like communicating with each other. It happened in Animal Crossing, which was a, a, a phase of lockdown number one, I think, and Fortnite and all these like other alternative spaces. Um, yeah, and so it's just about kind of creating a space that works for you. So th this is your fourth issue coming out. It's coming out at the end of the month and it's a youth issue, is that right? Yeah. So what, what's in it? What's, what's the sort of stuff that you've got going on in it? So with all of our issues, um, we take a really global approach to a topic. We're lucky to kind of work with people from over 60 countries around the world, which mm. is really exciting. Um, and yeah, the same goes for our youth issue. Um, and so we have such a range of different pieces from kind of protests in Peru and Thailand to the youth leading the charge on TikTok. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole range of really exciting young people. Well, we're talking about, like, you know, Shadow as if it's a print magazine, which it is, mm -hmm. but it's way more than that. Um, you've, got the, you've got your website, you've got events, you're on Instagram. Mm -hmm. what, how do all those things work together? How does, what's the relationship there? We've always seen print as sort of, well, it's kind of the cornerstone of everything we do. Like, I would say that there are three main strands to Shadow, which is the print and online publication, and then events and projects as well. But when it comes to the print, that sort of guides our content. Um, so we release a print magazine twice a year, and then that guides our content in terms of what we do for our events and what we do for our projects. The whole point of Shadow is to sort of disrupt the media space. I know disruptor magazines is like a bit of like a buzzword, but it's about kind of <laughs> implanting stories where they're not usually shown. And I think when you have the print magazine, there's something really nice about having a physical issue which can be stocked kind of like in the tape, which is maybe like a space which is historically white, but then you're yeah. kind of planting in these new voices. Um, and so I think that's something that's really exciting about print. The other stuff, though, that, that you've got going on, so you've got twice a year is this, this, these print issues, but then your website is updating constantly and Instagram is updating constantly, is that right? And yes. What, what goes into those spaces? But when it comes to the website, I suppose that's where we have a bit more space to explore topics um, that aren't necessarily being focused on in print. So that gives us a chance to have a bit of a broader brief rather than a theme. And when it comes to Instagram, yeah, we're, we're pretty active on that. We are always aware that 
it can never be the be all and end all. It's been really useful for us, especially as a global publication in terms of finding Mm. people um, to contribute and people finding us. But we are aware that it does need to go further than the old um, infographic industrial complex, (laughs) if you want to call it that. (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, I do do think Instagram and social media is a very legitimate um, space for activism. Um, but I suppose that's why we also have the print magazine, we also have the website, because it's further resources. It's kind of, you can um, learn more about kind of the topics that you might scroll Mm. past on Instagram. That idea of resources, I think, is interesting. I looked at the website and you've got that glossary there. Yes. I'm an older white guy. Um, I some of the stuff in there was was brand new to me and it was fascinating just the breadth of stuff that is in your glossary where did the idea for that come from? I've got to give a shout out to Amy Dixon who is someone who has recently um, started volunteering with us who I guess even what you and I Peter were talking about just before we started recording trying to break out of a bubble of, of an echo chamber um, and not assuming that everybody kind of knows or has come across certain terms before. We created the glossary because we are trying to make topics as accessible as possible, but that doesn't work if you've got an article that's full of words that um, people might not have heard of. That was the thought behind that. That's actually quite a new addition and something that we'll get continually added to and probably changed because that's another thing we're we're quite big on sort of changing like I don't know we think we think it's important that people can change their um, opinion Mm -hmm. about something when they're presented with new information Um, certainly that's how we see our role as well we're we're learning constantly I think that's such an interesting thing for someone who publishes a magazine to say because nine times out of ten a magazine adopts a position usually because that's a commercially viable position but they adopt this position and then they just hammer it until it's not worth hammering anymore Mm. to hear you say that you it's okay to change your mind like that I think it's fascinating is that inherent in the space that you're working in, that you're just getting all this new stuff all the time? Um, I think so. I think something like Shadow can afford to be quite fluid because it's never been about like our editorial voice because we've always been seen ourselves as a platform for other people's voices anyway. So it's... Right. In that, in that respect, maybe we, we have that privilege where another magazine yeah. might not. Because I do, I do understand that it is, it is important to have a stance. It's just that if we're platforming new, new voices and new opinions, then, that's, um, then that is fluid as well. Well, I guess that's the stance, isn't it? Your role is to platform new voices. I mean, how do you decide what your issue is going to be about? This one's about youth. How do you choose your themes? I mean, the first theme was a bit of a non-brainer for us that we really wanted to kind of platform um, kind of migration. And then our following issues have come kind of naturally because you realise when you're doing a deep dive into a topic, everything is so connected anyway. So our, our, our previous issue was on climate justice. And that was a real look at kind of reframing the climate crisis as something which is political and social um, and affects different people in different ways. So not just 
it's not just kind of like melting ice caps and animal rights. It's 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 a much bigger kind of socially connected thing. And there are so many young people who are leading the charge. I mean, whereas Fridays for Future, there are all these different organisations around the world. And like, it's mainly young people who are creating the change there. So it was a really natural progression for us to then do an issue focusing specifically on youth, on young people. So Shadow, your name is short for or an acronym of See Here Act Do. Where did that come from? And what you know, what does it mean to you? For us, it sort of encompasses all the different ways that people are creating change. Like there are mediums across the arts, um, different ways of people using their skills and their actions. I guess we really believe that everyone has a role in creating change. And so it's just using whatever kind of tools are at people's disposal to do that. I got the sense of what you're looking for from your contributors. You've got that lived experience. You want them to basically tell their own stories. What sort of expectations have you got of your readers? Do you want them to be activists? Do you want them to become activists because of what you're doing? I think it goes back to, you know, changing your mind about something and being willing to take on new information and like apply that to real life. I think we want people to come with a willingness to learn from other people's experience. But also we recognise that people are on different journeys and at at different stages of kind of their learning and, and, you know, different levels of pre-existing knowledge. And so we want to make our content accessible and so people can kind of absorb what they want from it. I've asked you about your contributors, but who's your perfect reader? Hmm, a perfect reader. So, um, do, do we want them to come back to us? I mean, yes, we want, we want our perfect reader to read some of the things that are written and become angry or become hopeful or enact some sort of change from what they've learned. Yeah, we want to inspire action of our readers, I think. Yeah, that, I think that's what I was maybe clumsily trying to get at, is that it's shadow a stepping off point in that sense. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I also think that we want to be a springboard into new topics and new like methods of understanding. We're not ever going to kind of claim that we've got we've got all the knowledge or we've got all the resources, but we want, yeah, we want people to learn something from shadow and then go on from that to kind of learn like more about a topic. One of the things that you've got going on is webinars. Is that part of that? Yeah, definitely. Um, In pre-pandemic times, we do a lot of events and we do panel discussions. Uh, And in COVID, obviously, they've moved online and we've moved to the webinar format. And that has actually been, it's been amazing. We've been able to have speakers and listeners from all around the world that's something that's been really good for our audience as well in terms of like we we try and offer an introduction to a topic and then within that within the conversation kind of there's a there's a space where the audience can ask questions to the panelists um, and also we really encourage the sharing of resources and so yeah you're right the webinars are kind of exactly just a just a different way of sharing information to then act as a springboard to go on to other yeah learning if i met you we were sat at a conference or whatever and i said to you what do you do and i do shadow how would you describe it i would describe shadow 
as a community-led platform which drives change at the intersection of arts, activism and research. That's my pitch. That's my elevator pitch. <laughs> Excellent. Sign me up. I was talking to Paul Chiu last week and he talked about impact. Uh, the Big Issue just did a, a huge kind of study on the impact that um, the changes that they made had had to the way they supported vendors. And I think that's a, <laughs> that's a really interesting metric for a publisher. What impact did you have? What change did you make? And in that sense, what does success look like for you guys? What does success look like for Shadow? So I think success and impact become quite interchangeable. I mean, for us, it's creating real life change. We really want to encourage culture-led system change. And so whether that's starting small, reading an article that we might have in our magazine that takes you on to change your opinion or do something with with whatever emotion that you might have got from the issue. But I think success looks like real life change. Hearing that our work has moved someone has led them to do something differently. I mean, we've we've been really lucky throughout the couple of years that we've been active to have met incredible people um, and done a lot of exciting stuff, but I think still one of the highlights of Shadow for me was back in January 2019 when we were just setting up and we had um, one of our contributors was a young Syrian photographer called Abdulaziz Dekan. Um, he lives in Brussels now with his family um, and documents um, people who have also been through the refugee experience. Um, I think he himself was sick of the the way that mainstream media was um, portraying people in refugee camps. And so he wanted to kind of change that. And he did that with his photography, with his camera. Um, and so we commissioned him for the magazine we in our launch event um we had some of his photos up and we were like god we really want him to be here we really really want him to be able to be here to be at his first exhibition um and so we on his behalf went to a law firm in london and asked them to sort out a visa for him and they did and they did that's a big shout out to mish Condorea. they um they sort did some pro bono work for us, got him a visa to the UK. And so then he could come to London for the first time. Um, and that, I don't know, that is still something that will stick with me, I think, for a long time. It definitely sounds like making connections is your big thing, bringing people together mm -hmm. and getting, amplifying these, these kind of voices. Uh, if I can be crass and commercial for a second, how do you pay the bills? We are reliant on grant funding at the moment. Also, we're like painfully aware that even with our grant funding, we're not we're not able to sort of pay the industry average or what people deserve. Um, but yeah, we we're currently funded by Arts Council um, and sustainability. Yes, yeah, so that kind of goes towards the payment of our artists and our writers. So people need to get out there and buy your next issue, right? <laughs> Absolutely. When it's out on, I get what, is it March the 26th? Yes, yeah, Friday. The frustration that you feel with, I don't like the phrase the mainstream media because I think it's, it's there's, there's a lot under that umbrella, but how would you boil down that frustration just 
from your point of view? Um, I suppose the main frustration is when it feeds into a bigger and basically untrue image of something. So it just contributes to, willfully or not, to kind of a culture of misunderstanding. And that in itself kind of brings about, you know, fear or anger. I don't know, this whole sort of like fear of fear of the unknown. <laughs> it doesn't have to be there if, if the so-called unknown voices are actually given a platform. I've got, I've got an interesting kind of relationship with the word activist. Because I think, I think in some ways it's very important. And if people self-identify as an activist, then that's brilliant. But I know a lot of people who are like branded as activists, but they're like, oh, I don't see myself as being an activist. I'm just doing what I can to be alive and be safe. I think that's, that's something as well. Like we just, until, until people don't have to sort of fight for their existence. Um, yeah, it's 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 important to kind of give give a platform to people. Okay, so our last question is always the same. We ask our guests for a media recommendation for our listeners. Anything really that you've enjoyed or that's moved you or that you know that you learned from? Well, yesterday for for us chatting now was the fifteenth of March, which marked ten years since the protests in Syria officially started. And so the media recommendation I would have is the film for Sama, which is by Wad Al-Khatib, who is a Syrian filmmaker. And I think it sort of encapsulates what we are trying to do at Shadow. Like, I think that film was what was missing from the conversation and the narrative of migration. Because, yeah, this, this film, it's all about self-narration. I mean, European media was kind of filled with dehumanization, desensitization and hostility towards kind of Syrian refugees and the experience in Syria. And then for Sama is just a brilliant film and such a powerful example of storytelling through lived experience. Well, thank you very much for listening. Just one more reminder that we are taking a necessary Easter break. <sighs> we'll be back on April the 12th. But in the meantime, please do tell anybody who you think would appreciate a weekly news media roundup to listen to and do head over to our ko-fi page which is ko-fi.com slash media voices if you want to throw us some money to help cover our operating costs it's always appreciated we love you and if you're desperate for more media voices content sign up for a daily newsletter it contains four of the most important media stories of the day as curated by us the media voices team and of course a link to our latest episode go to voices.media to sign up and finally our publisher podcast awards are virtual this year um, you can register for free but we are trialling a pay what you feel obliged to <laughs> model <laughs> which is please please pay some money um, please give us some cash yeah, you, know, if you can you can register for free, but if you want to get a gift box or a program, those are not free. We're not, uh, not, <laughs> we're not crazy. Uh, but yeah, you can get like little uh, little bottle of prosecco, some chocolate buttons, some popcorn, some things like that. Uh, the last week for that is this week, so go to publisherpodcastawards.com/tickets for more details on that. We're going to be back on April twelfth for the start of a new slate of amazing episodes featuring fantastic guests. But until then, please do stay safe and enjoy the sunshine. Leave those flags alone. <laughs>